The Bible starts with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If this statement is false, then the rest of scripture is also in doubt. If the Bible is wrong about Jesus being the creator of all things, then it's also wrong about when it says he turned water into wine, he calmed the storm, he walked on water, he instantly healed the blind man, he fed the 5,000. And what about his death and resurrection? Is the Bible also wrong about that? I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the president and founder of Creation Training Initiative. And our topic for this session is does God exist? Part two. We're looking at evidences that support the existence of a creator God. Now in part one, we covered the argument from cosmology. The fact that the universe does exist is a testimony that there has to be a creator God and evolution cannot be true. Now in part two of our five-part series for the existence of God, we're going to discuss design. Design in the universe, design in life. So our five topics again are number one, cosmological evidence, evidence from design, which is this session's topic, evidence from the existence of moral absolutes, evidence from the existence of non-material entities, and then the reality of God's word. Those will be our five parts in this session, the existence of God. Now, we want to investigate two main areas about design. Number one, design in the universe, and number two, design in life. Well, let's start with design in the universe. And I'd like to go through 11, just 11, specific design evidences in the universe that testify to a creator God. And evidence number one is something called the atom. And we're familiar with an atom. It's our basic unit of matter. Now, an atom is made up of three main parts protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now, here's where the design comes in. A proton is exactly 1,836 times more massive than an electron. If the electron to proton mass was slightly larger or smaller, molecules would not form and there could be no life. Isn't that incredibly lucky that the proton to electron mass just happened to be right? Well, evidence number two is the electromagnetic coupling. Now, don't get lost in these fancy words, but let's focus on the design here. The electromagnetic coupling constant is what binds electrons to protons in atoms. If this effect was slightly smaller, no electrons would be held in orbit about the nuclei. If this effect was slightly larger, an atom could not share an electron orbit with other atoms. And guess what? there'd be no molecules and no life. So two evidences that have to be just right. Well, evidence number three is something called the nuclear strong force. This is one of the four basic forces in nature. The other three being gravity, the electromagnetic force, which we just talked about, and the weak nuclear force. As the name implies, the strong force is the strongest of the four. However, it also happens to have a very short range, meaning the particles must be extremely close to each other in order to have this take effect. Now, the strong force's main job is to hold together the subatomic particles in the nucleus. If this was slightly weaker, multi-proton nuclei would not hold together. 
Hydrogen would be the only element in the universe, and again, there would be no life. Well, let's go to evidence number four, the size of our planet Earth. We live in a very special planet here. The Earth just happens to be the right size. If it was any smaller, it wouldn't be sufficient enough, it wouldn't be sufficient gravity, and it would all leak out into space. Now, we would have what we call a leaky planet, less gravity, and no one would survive. Evidence five, let's just take a look at the Earth itself. The amazing things the Earth has been designed with to make life possible. See, the Earth's gravity, axle tilt, rotation period, magnetic field, crust thickness, oxygen to nitrogen ratio, carbon dioxide, water vapor, and ozone levels are all just right for sustaining life. See, our Earth has a tilt. It tilts about 23.5 degrees on its axis, which allows for the Earth to have seasons. This tilt appears to be well designed for life. If the Earth was tilted any less, the polar regions would receive less energy, reducing the habitable area for the planet. If the Earth were tilted more, the seasons would become too extreme, potentially reducing plant growing seasons and making the environment less habitable. Well, let's go to evidence six, the relationship between the Earth and the sun. The Earth actually doesn't go around our sun in a circle. It really goes in what we call an elliptical orbit. The closest our planet comes to the sun is about 91.4 million miles, and the farthest away is about 94.5 million miles. Any closer to the sun would be too hot. Any further away, the Earth would be in what we call an eternal winter. See, Earth orbit is just the right distance from the sun for temperatures to allow also for liquid water. Well, let's look at evidence number seven, and that happens to be our sun. Our sun just happens to be the right color, size, and type for life. If it was redder or bluer, photosynthetic processes would be weaker, and we may not have any plant life. If the sun was larger, there would be too much energy radiation. If it was smaller, the range of planetary distances able to support life would be very small. Evidence number eight, the relationship between the Earth and the Moon. The Earth's Moon is about the fifth largest moon in our solar system. It's about one quarter the size of the Earth's diameter. Without the Moon, we would not be here. You see, the Moon's gravity pulls on the Earth's oceans, creating tides which acts as stabilizers in the climate. Evidence number nine, the distance between the Earth and the Moon. If the Moon was closer to the Earth, tides would be greatly increased and the ocean waves would run across the continents and we wouldn't have any life. If the Moon was any further away, it would reduce the tides and all marine life would be in danger from the resulting stagnant water. Evidence number 10, the stars. See, the distance between stars affects the orbits of planets. The average distance between the stars and our galaxy is about five light years or about 30 trillion miles. If this distance were slightly smaller, the gravitational interaction between the stars would be so strong, planetary orbits would be destabilized. And finally, evidence number 11, our own Milky Way galaxy. Just as our location in the solar system is just right, our solar system's location in our galaxy 
is just the right place. See, if our solar system was too close to the center of the galaxy, or at the edge of any of these spiral arms, or close to any cluster of stars, our planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. Any one of these Levitan evidences we just went through shows incredible design, I don't believe incredible luck. But when we take all 11 of them, it is beyond reason to believe in random chance or evolution. We just looked at the electron to proton mass had to be just right. The electromagnetic coupling was just right for life. The strong nuclear force is just right to provide for life. The Earth is just the right size for life. The Earth's gravity, axle tilt, rotation period, crust thickness, oxygen-nitrogen ratio is just right for life. The distance between the Earth and the Sun is just right for life. The Sun is just the right color, size, and type for life. The Moon's gravity pull on the Earth, Earth is just right for life. The Moon's distance from the Earth is just right for life. Our distance between stars in our galaxy is just right for life. And our location of the solar system in our galaxy is just right for life. When we look at all this, we begin to wonder, why? Do so many people continue to believe in such things as the Big Bang and random chance rather than special design by our almighty creator God? Let me give you four reasons why they continue to willfully reject our creator God and what it says in the Bible. First of all, that is what most of our youth have ever been taught in the education system. See, the education system focuses on evolutionism and not true science anymore. Number two, a lack of good teaching in many of our churches and our homes. Number three, a compromise by many of our church leaders and Christian university professors. And number four, a willful rejection of a greater God as it states in Romans 1, 19 and 20, where God tells us he's given us all the evidence. And we just looked at 11 of those evidences God tells us he's given us all the evidence and no one has an excuse for not believing in a greater God. Just as the Bible teaches in Isaiah 42, verse 5, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. And then we read in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In other words, as it says in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So you decide, random chance or special design by a creator God. Now let's part, go to part two. Let's look at design in life. Let's start by asking a very simple question about life. Have our scientists been able to create a single living cell? Have they been able to create DNA or even a small single biological protein? And the answer is no. Our best scientists 
throughout the ages have not been able to create even one single biological protein, let alone the other components of a cell. With all that knowledge and all the scientific discoveries, we can't even come close to a cell or even the components inside a cell. Let me show you a few quotes here. Some of these come from evolutionism cells. The first one is from you. Uh, Hubert Yockey, he has his PhD in physics, and he makes this statement. A great deal of effort has been expended in finding theories for the origin of life without success. See, at the cell level, the case for God as creator is overwhelming. For example, there are hundreds of amino acids, but only 20 are used in life. That makes life very selective, which means there's a design there, not random chance. Only 20 of the hundreds and hundreds of amino acids out there are used in life. Amino acids also come in two shapes. They're called left-handed and right-handed. The only difference is they're mirror images of each other. They contain the same components. But in all biological life, in all life, only left-handed amino acids are used. But the natural tendency left to itself is to combine left and right-handedness. So how do we get only left-handed amino acids? No scientist has been able to figure this out. I believe God did. Then we also know life cannot start in the presence of oxygen. Life cannot start if there was no oxygen on this planet. And we also know from observable science, life cannot start in water. Tremendous design capabilities here. Andrew Knoll, professor, Harvard University, makes this statement. In a nutshell, what is the process? How does life form? The short answer is we don't really know how life originated on this planet. There have been a variety of experiments that tell us some possible roads, but we remain in substantial ignorance. Jonathan Sarfati, PhD in physical chemistry makes this statement. Many of life's chemicals come in two forms, left-handed and right-handed. Life requires polymers with all building blocks having the same handedness, called homochorality. Proteins have only left-handed amino acids, but ordinary undirected chemistry, as the hypothetical primordial soup, would produce equal mixtures of left and right-handed molecules called racemates. And then Jonathan Wells, PhD in molecular and cell biology, makes this statement. So we remain profoundly ignorant of how life originated. Yet the Miller-Urey experiment continues to be used as an icon of evolution because nothing better has turned up. Instead of being told the truth, we are given the misleading impression that scientists have empirically demonstrated the first step in the origin of life. Folks, our scientists don't have a clue how life originated unless you go to God's Word and read, in the beginning, God created. And then there's a little law of science called the law of biogenesis, which states life only comes from prior life. See, spontaneous generation, the emergence of life from non-living matter, has never been observed. All observations have shown that life only comes from life. This has been observed so consistently <clears throat> that we've created a law of science about it called the law of biogenesis.
In other words, it is evolutionists that are ignoring science, not the creationist. Now, since the evolutionists claim that life arose from lifeless chemicals, again called spontaneous generation or chemical evolution, they are in direct conflict with our laws of science. So how do evolutionists try to get around these laws? How do they try and convince others that there's still a credible philosophy? Let me give you three ways they evade the issue. Number one, some say that future studies may show how life could have originated in matter, in lifeless matter, despite the overwhelming odds against us. Folks, this is just a faith statement and not science. It has nothing to do with science saying, oh, in the future we'll figure it out, folks. That's just filling in the gaps with your faith. Some will claim that evolution does not start until the first cell arises. This is just a statement based on ignorance. In an attempt to avoid the obvious, the evolutionists have no answer. Some claim that the origin of life has nothing to do with evolution. But then why is the origin of life mentioned in our biology textbooks? See, this is just another statement based on ignorance and again, trying to hide the obvious, they do not have any answers for the origin of life. Now, let's look at a further case of design in life called probability. A cell contains thousands of proteins, all made up of amino acids. Thousands of proteins, and each one made up of many, many amino acids. The probability, now the probability of getting a single protein by random chance is 10 to the 30th power. That's a number that looks like this, one followed by 30 zeros. But wait, there's more to it than that. See, to get a biological protein, we just can't be using just the 20 amino acids used in life. They all have to be left-handed and they all have to be in the right order. Now, the probability of this occurring is not 10 to the 30th. It's been calculated to be 10 to the 130th power. That's one followed by 130 zeros. Now, mathematician Emil Borel proposed one chance in 10 to the 50th as the upper limit that a chance event could occur. That's one followed by 50 zeros. But yet, the calculations and the chance of getting one biological protein is 10 to the 130th power, well beyond this limit. Now, Donald Johnson, Donald Johnson, PhD in chemistry and also another PhD in computer and information science makes this statement about probability. Since there is no known scientific procedure to generate life in the laboratory, let alone by some unknown prebiotic mechanism, one could assume the probability of life from purely physical causes is zero. And finally, these statements. John Ashton, degree in chemistry and a PhD in something called epistemology, which is a branch of philosophy dealing with the limits of knowledge. And he makes this statement. In other words, abiogenesis is absolutely impossible. That is, a living organism cannot arise by chance from non-living matter. See, we have the law of biogenesis, which states life only comes from life. That's because no one has ever observed anything else. But the evolutionists believe in something called abiogenesis, 
which means life can come from non-living matter. Folks, that is nothing more than a fairy tale. It has never, ever been observed. Then we have Phil Fernandez, who has his PhD in the philosophy of religion, and he makes this statement. Man can only find genuine meaning in life if he finds the God of the Bible apart from God. Life is absurd. Now, we've looked at the tiny cell. We've looked at the components of the cell. Now let's just take a couple of examples of design in living creatures. And one of my favorites happens to be the monarch butterfly. How do you go from a caterpillar to a very complex flying insect called a monarch butterfly? Well, let's kind of go through the stages here. We start with an adult that lays an egg. And this creature reaches maturity in just 20 days. And this creature grows, this caterpillar grows to be almost two inches long. And here's an incredible piece. It increases its weight almost 2,700 times. But that's not the most incredible thing. At maturity, this caterpillar looks for a special leaf and builds a silk pad on the bottom of the leaf. Then it hangs there in a J position, hangs there for about six hours. And then you'll start to see this caterpillar do a little movement. And that tells you it's about ready to begin building the chrysalis. That's not the most incredible thing. What happens next is a great testimony to a creator God and not random chance. Once this caterpillar is completely within that chrysalis, the entire caterpillar, everything except the heart, dissolves into a green liquid. Now the question is, what would happen to any other creature or any creature that dissolved itself into a green liquid? Well, that's the end of your existence. But yet, this creature, monarch butterfly, once it's dissolved in a green liquid, after eight days, it has reassembled itself into a monarch butterfly. How does it do this? This cannot be random chance. You see, even if evolution worked, it can't see into the future. Once this creature dissolves itself into a green liquid, the only way it can reassemble itself is somebody had to pre-program the instructions into its DNA to know how to reassemble itself. Folks, this requires pre programmed information or instructions, not random chance. Wow, what a tremendous testimony to a creator God, the monarch butterfly. And then there's the human body. Let's just take a look at a few of the design features in our human body. In our body, we have about 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Can you imagine wiring any machine with 60,000 miles of wire and making it work? We have a heart that pumps about 100,000 times a day. We don't have to oil it. We have red blood cells that transport oxygen to the tissues. How did that happen? We have white blood cells that rush to identify enemy agents and sacrifice themselves for our well-being. We have eyes and ears which are more complex than any machine mankind's ever made, which means whoever designed those eyes and ears must be smarter than anybody that's ever lived. The human body is made up of about 60 trillion cells, and each one's more complex than any machine mankind's ever made. And each second, about 10 million of your cells die and are being replaced. We have some bones in our body which are stronger than concrete. We have a nose that can recognize and remember about 50,000 different scents. 
Wouldn't you like to forget a few of those? We have nerve impulses that go to and from the brain up to 170 miles an hour. You get a new stomach lining every three to four days or you wouldn't survive. We have a liver that has over 500 different functions. We have sneezes. When we sneeze, those sneezes can go upwards to 100 miles an hour. We have teeth that start growing six months before we're born. Our eyes are fully formed and grown at birth. And this last one, I had to put it in. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. So let's keep those smiles coming. And then we can turn to the human brain. We have about 100 billion nerve cells in our brain, over 100 trillion connections, more connections in your brain than all the computers on the internet in the world. And we have a brain that has, can do about one quadrillion calculations a second. You see, Every human body is a testimony to an all-powerful, all-knowing Creator, as it states in Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Ladies and gentlemen, we do see design all around us. It is not just the appearance of design. This is real, purposeful design. From the planet that we live on, to the flowers we see, to the animals and the fish in the seas, to the complexity of a single cell, into our incredible human bodies, we have seen the evidence from design. From the design in the cosmology to the very smallest of the cells. We still have now three more sessions to do that will point to incredible design by an incredible Creator God. We have covered the cosmological evidence. We have covered the evidence from design in this session. The next three will be evidence from the existence of moral absolutes. What's the difference between right and wrong? Then we'll go into evidence from the existence of non-material entities. And finally, the last one the reality of God's Word. Thank you, and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.